Well, good morning. Welcome to Life Church. It's wonderful to see you all today. My name is Danny Phillips. I have the pleasure of serving you as the campus pastor at the West Campus. And if you're new to Life Church, we are one church in multiple locations. Here at the Germantown facility, this is our broadcast facility. We meet in the Marcus Majestic Cinema in the Pewaukee area, and actually up in Appleton as well at a Majestic Cinema there. And that's where Pastor Aaron is today. So thank you to him for allowing me to come and speak. Thank you to you also for being a church that kind of allows your senior pastor to go to other campuses and to encourage them to go on missions trips and partner with organizations all over the world to see the gospel spread. That's an incredible thing. You guys, you don't hoard him. We don't, we don't you know, keep him bound here. And that's really cool. It allows some incredible things to happen through this church. And uh, I just, I just want to welcome our West Campus and our online campus today. Germantown, can you help me do that? We're so excited that they're tuning in today, and I know what they're thinking. They always see me in person at the West Campus, and they're going, wow, Danny, you got to lay off the Christmas cookies. And to which I would say the camera adds 10 pounds, so cut me a break, seriously. I was eating a lot. I don't know about you guys, but I hope everybody got what they wanted for Christmas you know, Eva and I, we've got an eight-month-old daughter, so this was her very first Christmas. And I realized that when you have kids, Christmas is very different than before. And so we, we came home with a singing cookie jar and a puppy piano that speaks Spanish, and it was like one nightmarish game of Secret Santa. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that. In the middle of the night, the cookie jar was singing its ABCs. I still don't know how to turn it off. Definitely really, really weird. But it was a good Christmas. I hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas. This is the end of our year, the last weekend of 2013. And I'm excited to talk to you guys today. And a lot of you guys know me. Some of you don't. And I'm one of these guys. I like to have fun, and I like to do crazy stuff. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, I was into motorcycles and guns and cars and snowboarding and anything that was dangerous that terrified my mother. And I always wanted to be Evil Knievel. And if you're in this room and you don't know who Evil Knievel is, think like Travis Pastrana, right? Jumps motorcycles over buses and planes and does all kinds of crazy stunts. In fact, if the ministry doesn't work out for me, you will find me in Hollywood crashing cars for a living, hopefully, Lord willing. But when I was like seven or eight, lived in a northern suburb of Chicago, and we always used to do stunts on our bikes. I think pretty much every guy in the room has done some sort of stunt on his bike or rollerblades or skateboard. And I had my trusty piece of plywood, and I would lay that sucker over every log, every brick, every curb I could find, and I would just launch right over it. And I remember one day, my friends and I, we were together, and I thought, you know what? I've got the jump to end all jumps. We're going to do it big today, fellas. And so we all got together, and I got my parents' igloo cooler out of the garage, which was one of those big white ones, like 18 inches tall. It would be the largest thing that I've ever ramped over before. And I took my trusty piece of plywood, I laid it over the cooler, and I told my friends, I said, hey, we got to do this big. We need some pyrotechnics, so go get all your sparklers left over from the 4th of July. And we kind of made like a runway, right? And we lit those sparklers, and I'm on my bike getting psyched up, and as I'm about to ride around, I'm not thinking about the fact that I've modified my bicycle. As many of you know, kickstands, well, they're for wusses, right? So I took my kickstand off because cool guys don't have kickstands on their bike. You know, it's extra weight. You don't want it flopping when you're doing sweet jumps. And as a result of that, I had to lay my bike down all the time on the pavement which cut holes in the ends of the grips and sharpened the circular edges of the bars 
I'm not thinking about this. I'm riding my bike. I line up. All I see is sparklers, and I see my sweet jump, and I'm pedaling my little heart out, and I go flying over this. And what I didn't realize is that as I launched over it, the weight of me and my bike on the plywood sort of squeezed out the igloo cooler and sent it sliding forward, of course, because it was empty. I wasn't the smartest seven-year-old on the planet. And I'm traveling, and on the same vector is the igloo cooler underneath me. I land on top of it, I crash, and as I'm crashing, the bars turn sideways into my chest and hit me right in the ribs. I'm bleeding, my shirt is ripped, I lost my breath, it knocked all the wind out of me, which is the worst if you've ever been there. Getting the wind knocked out of you is awful. And of course, I'm crying, I was seven, cut me a break. I go inside, my mom stitches me up, she cleans me up, and after a while, after the wound healed, I had this perfectly round scar on my chest. Yeah, it was weird. And so I'd go swimming, I'd go to the beach, and people would be like, where did you get that perfectly round scar? And so I would tell the story, and of course they would get excited, and they think I was the coolest seven-year-old on the block. But I realized at a very young age that people love to tell stories about scars. Everyone's got an interesting one. You've got a scar from an accident like me when you were acting foolishly, or a, or a surgery, or a broken bone. You know, it's all kinds of things. When I was in college, I, I was... I wasn't the smartest college student either. I thought it would be really, really cool. I watched a lot of Shark Week, so cut me a break. I thought it'd be so cool if I got attacked by a shark and had like a bite mark, you know? Because I was like, man, this is going to help me get my future wife. She's going to see the bite mark from the shark and be like, this guy, he's irresistible. I need him in my life. I wasn't the brightest crayon in the box, but we love talking about scars. And if you don't have an interesting scar story, I'm sure you've heard more than your fair share but there are scars that we don't like to talk about. There are scars that are left by emotional things, by, by, by traumatic events, um, emotional, spiritual, kind of mental scars, the kinds that don't show on the outside. These scars breed insecurity and shame, and, and we've all got them, whether we realize it or not. And some of these scars, they're, they're left by abuse or betrayal, by regret, or loneliness, and, and frankly, I don't really need to list all the things because I, I couldn't even if I wanted to, but chances are right now you're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, I can think of an event in my life that shaped who I am today and the way that I think about certain things, the way that I act, some of my habits, some of my thought processes, has cultivated some of the fears in my life, whether legitimate or illegitimate. And we suppress these memories. I do this myself. We, we, we sort of suppress them. We, we push them under the rug. We try our best to forget about them. But what if these scars could be used for good? You know, our Bible says in Romans, Paul said in 8.28, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And if we truly believe that God can take any situation, any instance, any hurt in your life, and use that to further the kingdom according to his will, why do we suppress those scars? And, and this is something that's been bouncing around in my head a lot. You know, we're in the midst, we're in between two series right now, which means this is a standalone message. These are my favorites, because I get to just share with you my heart. And this is something that I've been thinking about for quite a long time. And as I pondered this whole idea of scars and wounds and, and suppressing and hiding these things, I came across uh, a particular person, and we find him in Mark chapter 5. 
So if you've got your Bibles today or your smartphone or your tablet, turn to Mark 5. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up on the screen. And uh, I'm just going to read it here. Basically, to set it up, Jesus has been doing his thing, wonders and signs and miracles. And uh, he's traveled across the Sea of Galilee, and he's about to get out of the boat. And that's where we pick this story up. It's in verse 2. It says, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had just said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many, and begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, which encourages and inspires, which has an application for every facet of our lives. I pray today, Lord, that you would speak through me, that they would be your words and not mine, Lord, that you would be glorified and not me. Father, encourage us today and build us up. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this guy, safe to say he had a lot of issues. He had a lot going on. Um, lives in a graveyard. That's kind of weird. You don't really hear about that a whole, whole lot. Runs around screaming, cutting himself. Everyone is terrified of him. In fact, they keep trying to tie him up, which would be, which would be awful if you think about that. And uh, he's possessed by demons. Not just one demon, but roughly 2,000 demons. And the worst part about it is these aren't just like any old demon. When Jesus asks the man his name, the demons reply, which is usually a red flag. And, uh, <laughs> and the demons reply, legion. Now, if you're a history buff like me and you watch a little bit too much TV, you know that a Roman legion was a, a grouping of soldiers that was as small as a few hundred and as large as about 5,400. And these weren't like reserve soldiers or backup these guys, first of all, they would enlist for a period of 25 years. So they were career soldiers. And not only that, but a Roman legion was the he uh, elite heavy infantry unit, which means these guys were the baddest of the bad. They were the biggest. They were the toughest. They were the strongest. It was their life's work to maim, kill, and destroy. That's what they were. They were created by the Roman Empire to destroy people and things. And this guy... When his name is asked of him, the demons reply, we are legion. We're the biggest, we're the baddest, we're the toughest, and we're the meanest. I mean, he's got a lot going on. And I, I read this particular story and I go, wow, I'm glad I'm not as jacked up as that guy, right? I'm glad that I'm not as messed up as him. But as I'm reading and I realize how far-fetched and how wild and how outlandish this story really seems, I find myself going, hold on. There's something missing here. There's, I'm not learning anything from this story in the Word, and I know that everything's in there for a reason. So what's the purpose that this is in there? And I dig a little bit deeper, and I realize that me and this guy who was possessed by all these demons, we're really not that much different at all. And so I start to look 
at his story and some of the things that are said about him. And I think about the way sin often manifests in our lives. And I come to the conclusion that I've got a lot more in common with him than I think. Verse 3 says that the man lived in the tombs. I think that that shows us not only his physical homelessness, his poverty, but also his emotional homelessness. He had no safe place, nowhere to go. Sin will do that to you. It will take everything from you physically, but you will find yourself without a safe place, without a place of comfort. He was alone. He was very much a lonely man, I can only imagine. He was abandoned by all the people that he loved, and he lived in the tombs. He was surrounded by death and decay his entire life. Literally death. There was nothing living around him. He was in a graveyard with rotting corpses. The Bible goes on to say that he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. I think this shows us his wild and reckless nature. And sin will do that to us. It makes us uncontrollable. And there are certain sins that manifest themselves in this way. And I think if you've ever witnessed addiction firsthand, especially to a powerful substance, you see that it makes the person uncontrollable, wild. And they're almost not even in their right mind. They sort of bypass reason for the next high, the next little bit of substance. And people were afraid of him as a result of that. They were afraid they didn't know what he would do to himself or what he would do to others. It says he would cry out and he would cut himself. And I think that when it says cry out, it shows us his anxiety and the emotional torment that he really experienced in his life. I mean, I have had anxieties and sin in my life before, and maybe you have too, that has kept me up all night. And that's awful. There's nothing worse than not being able to go to sleep. This was this guy's life. His pain was on display for the whole world to see. He would literally cry out loud. He lived in a place called the Decapolis, which was a grouping of 10 cities. And so as people would travel from city to city to city, they knew who he was and where he was by his behavior, and they would avoid him. They all knew he was there. They all knew he was suffering. You know, and there's a parallel account in Luke chapter 8, which I'd love to read, but we just don't have time. And, and Luke was a physician, so he had some great attention to detail. And he makes the statement that the man was naked. And again, I think that sort of reminds us of his physical poverty, but what it really shows us is the man's shame. Because wherever sin exists, so does shame. You know, you might recall in Genesis, in chapter 2, uh, the Bible says that, that Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. But then immediately after that, in chapter 3, they're deceived, sin enters the world, they realize they're naked, and they hear God coming in the garden. So they hide. And God says, where are you? Why are you hiding? And Adam says, well, we were naked, so we hid. And God looks at him and says, who told you you were naked? How did you know? You shouldn't be ashamed of that. Well, along with our sin comes shame. And shame is quite possibly the worst emotion anyone can ever feel. And I might be off base, but I, I think in my life it is easily the worst you know, you hear, you hear uh, people encourage parents, you never, you never embarrass your kids, right? You never want to purposely put them to shame because it's got this powerful, traumatic, violent effect. The collateral damage associated with embarrassment and shame is of epic proportions. And this man, he didn't have anything to cover himself up. 
And last but not least, quite possibly a statement that Luke makes that sums up this man's entire story is that his demons drove him into the wilderness. And that's exactly what sin does. You see, the Bible refers to the wilderness as a place, again, of death and decay, a hard place to survive where there's no comfort, there's no security, there's no safety. And this man, the evil in his life, the sin in his life has driven him into the wilderness. It's separated from the people that he loves in the safe places. That's absolutely positively happened to me before. Sin in my life has separated me from the people that I love. In fact, even, even as I, I continue to walk it out, I feel sin encroaching at the door, and I can sense when it's trying to separate me from my friends, from, from, from my family, from my wife. It's just the nature of sin. It's what it does. It drives us away into the wilderness. So as you can see, he's very much like you and I. You know, I've never been demon-possessed. At least I don't think so. My wife might disagree. But I've never been demon-possessed. But I've got scars just like him. I think we all have. We've all been alone. We've all been ashamed. We've been broke financially. We've been in physical pain, emotional pain. We've been hurt by other people. We've hurt other people. We've hurt ourselves, and we've been separated by sin. And, and it's glaringly apparent to me as I, as I was studying this, wow, I can identify this guy, with this man on a level that I had no idea originally when I first read this text. But let's continue reading. In Mark 5, it, it goes on to tell us the story where, where Jesus, he casts the demons out, and the demons begged not to be sent into the abyss, but to be sent into a herd of pigs. About 2,000 of them, the word says. And they go careening down the side of a mountain into a lake, and they drowned. Which, on a side note, I find very interesting because pigs can swim. So that's, that's one of the, I'd love to unpack that today. In fact, I'm not 100% sure what that means, but, but I'd be curious to explore that. Maybe it's the fact that even the lowliest creatures on the planet won't tolerate sin and evil in their life, so they, they ran into the lake. But who knows? I don't know. I could be way off base with that one. So anyways, Jesus cast the demons out. The pigs run off the edge into the lake. They drowned. And the pig farmers are naturally, they're pretty upset. I'd be angry too. I don't know how much 2,000 pigs cost back in the day, but I'm sure it was a pretty penny. And they come marching up to Jesus, and they see this man who was possessed, but he's in his right mind, and he's fully clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's, that's interesting. But even more interesting than that is what happens next. Verse 18 says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Verse 19 says, Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all of the people were amazed. And I love that part of the story because we seem to think that the salvation of this man is the end, but in reality, it's the beginning. I know in our personal lives, oftentimes when we tell our testimonies, it feels like the salvation part, the Jesus showed up and he rescued me part, that that's the end, but in reality, it's the beginning. You know, I, uh, I love my job. I, I work here at Life Church, full-time staff, and I have relationships with many of you. A and on the West Campus, I've got relationships with as many people as I can meet out there. And what's cool about that is I get to spend time with you. I get to hear about you and your family and your kids. 
I get to hear about your testimonies, your hopes, your struggles, your failures, your successes, your dreams, your desires, your scars, frankly, your testimonies. And that's something that, that I really cherish. I, I feel so blessed that God allows me to have those kinds of relationships with you. But what I've learned is that everybody's got a story, whether they realize it or not, but that many of us have a passion to help people who are going through or have gone through similar issues to what you and I have dealt with. And not only that, but I've noticed that many of us just don't know where to start. We don't know where to start. And I believe that verses 19 and 20 have a great place to help us jump off from, a great place to help us start. And I think there's three main things we can pull out of those two verses that can encourage us to help people who have gone through or are going through similar issues that you and I have experienced. The first one is this, it's to start locally. Jesus said to the man, go home to your own people. And that's pretty simple. Go home to your friends, your families, your coworkers, your neighbors, that guy that you see in Starbucks every single day that you never speak to. And I know because I frequent a lot of coffee shops. And you see him and you go, man, I know his face. I could pick him out of the crowd anywhere in the world. But I've never actually spoken to that guy before. And when you see those people, look for opportunities to simply love them. You know, you don't have to climb up on a coffee table with a megaphone and start preaching Jesus. Although if you want to, you go on with your bad self. It's, I'm sure it'll be interesting. But to simply love those people, to look for those opportunities, and to make those opportunities. I don't think it's enough to simply be open to doing that. But I think sometimes God cracks that door just a tiny bit for us, wondering if we'll walk through it. And I, I've been there myself. In fact, because I'm preaching this right now, this week I'm going to have one of these moments. I'm going to be standing in line at Starbucks, and someone is going to be right there, and they're going to make that statement, right? They do it in the grocery store, in the mall. The, oh, how about the weather? Or, how about this? Or, yeah. And, you know, what do we do? We smile. We give them a short answer. But then we kind of wonder ourselves, okay, God, am I supposed to talk to this person, right? If God, if I'm supposed to talk to them, I pray that a dove would come flying through the door and land on their shoulder, <laughs> right? God, if I'm supposed to talk to them, I'm going to take a sip of my coffee and it's going to taste like apple juice, right? We sort of like, we try to rationalize in our brain, you know, how, man, I just want to make sure I'm supposed to talk to them, right? Because I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to embarrass them. But I've come to the realization that the devil will never encourage us to love people. It's not in his nature. He's not capable of it. It, it doesn't fit his profile. And so I would encourage you in those moments, just simply look for him and try to make an opportunity. And then once that door has been opened, and it might be something simple. You might just say, hey, how are you? I really like your shoes. Oh, yeah, I got them for Christmas. What's your name? My name's Danny. Great. Well, you see him a couple days later. Hey, great to see you, Steve. H how are the kids doing? Good New Year's? Awesome. You have no idea how that's going to kind of progress. And then the next step would be simply to share your scars. Jesus said to the man, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Share your scars. That doesn't mean you have to air out all your dirty laundry and tell them your life story. But what it does is it says, allow yourself to be vulnerable for just a moment. I find it profound that Jesus said mercy and he didn't say blessing. Because we're really good at sharing our blessings. Really good. But frankly, when someone is down and out, they don't care that God has blessed your business. They don't care that God's blessed your family or your kids. They can't identify with those blessings. But when you say, you know what? 
I was in a situation just like you were so many years ago, and it hurt. But this is how I overcame. This is where Jesus arrived in my life. What's, what's the worst thing that could happen? Are they going to laugh at you? Well, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But in that moment, you have the opportunity to share your testimony. And the best part about your testimony is that it's yours. No one can disprove your testimony because it happened to you. No one can argue it. Oh, that never happened. Man, God didn't mend your marriage five years ago. God didn't deliver you from alcohol or drugs. God didn't deliver you from despair and loneliness and depression. There's no way that happened. I, I don't believe it. They can't say that, right? It's your story. And I love testimonies because there is nothing as inspiring and uplifting and encouraging as a testimony. You know, I think sometimes we, we see pastors up on stage and you wonder, I wonder what they talk about for fun when they're with other pastors. <laughs> we talk about all kinds of fun stuff. But oftentimes we talk about the incredible testimonies from people just like you who have said, you know what? I was bound to alcohol for 30 years and then God showed up and he touched me and he freed me. We talk about things like that. And the final step is this, is to simply begin. Verse 20 says, So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Just begin. Don't overthink it. Pull a Nike and just do it, right? I was going to wear that shirt that says just do it today, but I was told I can't wear a t-shirt on stage. I'm just playing. That's not true. I just didn't think that would be appropriate. But anyways, <laughs> pull a Nike. Just do it. Just begin. You know, Jesus didn't say to the man, hey, go to Bible college, then go work at a church, right? And then memorize Old Testament and part of the New Testament. Then you can go out and share that. No, he said, go tell him. Tell him about the mercy that I've had on you. Tell him of everything that I've done for you. And this man did it. I mean, imagine what it would be like for him. He lived in the tombs. He literally had scars head to toe, physical scars. I mean, from the chains that he broke on his wrists and his ankles, he probably had scar tissue. He probably had cuts and burns on his arms from where he was trying to break the binding, where he cut himself with those stones. He couldn't hide it. But he was so excited about what Jesus had done for him, it overflowed. And he spent the rest of his life traveling around these 10 cities, telling them about the mercy that Jesus had on him. Testifying. And the best part of that, the end of verse 20 says, all of the people were amazed. All of the people were amazed. Why? Because he was willing to push his shame aside. His gratitude was greater than the shame that he ever had. His gratitude was greater than anything else in his life, and it shone brighter than that for what Jesus had done for him. You know, Paul said that I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. I bear the scars. You and I, we bear the scars of Jesus, our testimony of the mercy he's had on us. What would it look like if we walked out today in Germantown, in Pewaukee, and we went to lunch, or we went to the grocery store, and that door cracked open, and that person made that comment, and we saw an opportunity, or we made an opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with someone? What if we were the last Jesus they were ever going to see before they were going to get in a car and get hit by a drunk driver? Or go home and make a decision that could alter their life and their family? 
What if that was us? What if we had that opportunity? Sometimes I'm afraid that we forget the urgency of the gospel. We have the ability to do that. Start locally, to be vulnerable, to share our scars, to simply begin just to do it. You know, I tell you why I preach this message today. There's a couple guys in my life that, that, I, that I personally disciple, whom I love more than brothers. And, and I'm the guy on the other end of the phone at midnight when they're dealing with something. And one of these guys called me and he said, Danny, I spent so many years of my life bound by alcohol. He said, I was ashamed of myself and I hated everyone and I was miserable and I just wanted everyone else to be miserable. I wanted everyone else to hurt just like me. And he said, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be that person. I don't want anyone to feel the way that I felt. He said, what do I do? How do I go about this? It's in the word. To bear those scars. You might be in a situation now where you have a son or a daughter who is wayward. A prodigal son. You could have been delivered from addiction. You could have had a marriage that's been healed. Don't keep it to yourself. When God draws those people to you, love them. Allow yourself to be vulnerable for just a moment. And see if Christ won't shine through you onto that person. That's the best feeling in the world, is when God uses you to touch someone else. There's nothing better. This man's gratitude outweighed everything else, outshined everything else in his life. And all of the people were amazed. And I just want to encourage you today. And, and I feel like on a morning like this, here at Germantown and at the West Campus, there are some people listening and they go, you know what, Danny? I don't know what you're talking about. My marriage is still in shambles. I still feel depressed and bound by anxiety. My sin keeps me up at night and torments me. I've been driven into the wilderness and away from everyone I love and the people that I care for, and I'm over it. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and he was nailed to the cross. He was murdered like a criminal so that you and I didn't have to suffer, so that you and I don't have to have that shame in our lives. He nailed our shame to the cross along with himself. And if everyone would bow their head and close their eyes here and at the West Campus, and I'm simply going to pray for you. And if that's you and you want to say, you know what, I don't know where to go. I don't know how to start, but I need this Jesus. I need to make that decision. All you've got to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that the Bible is, uh, Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and you will be saved. And so as I pray out loud, just say to yourself, Father, Lord, we worship you. We praise you, God, for your word, which speaks to our hearts and into our lives, Lord. I pray for the people who are listening to the sound of my voice right now, and their heart is beating out of their chest, and their palms are sweaty, God, and they are into the wilderness. They're in despair. Lord, they're living in the tombs right now, God. They've got scars. They've got open wounds. They've been hurt by people. They've hurt others. They've hurt the ones that they love. God, right now they need you. And in this moment, they're simply going to say, Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. I believe that you lived a sinless life. I believe that when you died on Calvary's cross, you took my sin with you, that you paid the price for me. And that this is a gift that I only need to accept. 
Jesus, we worship you today. We thank you, Father, for the lives that are touched, Lord. And I pray for every single one of the Christ followers that is with us today. Lord, that you would inspire us and encourage us, that you would give us boldness, God, that as we leave today and we come across people who are hurting, this world is full of them. Lord, that you would help us make an opportunity to love those people, that you would shine through us onto them. Father, give us the words to speak. We're not eloquent. We just humbly ask that we can be your vessel, that you would use us to share the love of Jesus Christ with those people. Father, encourage us today. Inspire us. Help us change our cities, Germantown, Mequon, Pewaukee, Menominee Falls, Sussex, New Berlin, Waukesha, Cedarburg, West Bend. Father, use us. Ignite a fire in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.